0: You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past.
1: There is no dignity when you must flee the laws of your own state, where doing the best you know for yourself and your future is deemed criminal. And I wanted to do everything I could to see that other women never went to that back alley.
0: Attorney Sarah Weddington, who won the Roe v. Wade case in 1973. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Last week, the United States Supreme Court overturned the nearly 50-year-old Roe v. Wade decision, which guaranteed a woman's constitutional right to an abortion. That 1973 ruling came in a case that was hard-fought and hard-won by a very young Texas attorney. In fact, Sarah Weddington was only 27 when she argued the case before the nation's high court on behalf of her client, the pseudonymous Jane Roe. And when I spoke with her in 1993, 20 years after the ruling, Sarah Weddington was still very apprehensive about the future of the ruling that she had worked so hard for. And as it turns out, her concerns were valid. And it also turned out that Weddington had a personal interest in the outcome of the Roe v. Wade case, as you're about to hear. So here now from 1993, attorney Sarah Weddington.
1: The book to me was three things. One, it was a reflection of history. You see, a couple of years ago I started to travel and at the invitation of others talk a lot about the abortion issue, particularly the legal aspects. I traveled so much that when people said to me, where do you live, I would say Delta. And it seemed I was always on an airplane, but I couldn't get to enough people. And so partly it was to put into a form that more people could have access to than me personally. Second, it is history. It's an important part of the history of this country. In fact, in March of last year, Women's History Month, I was introduced as being historic and I realized for many I am ancient history. <laughs> uh, in fact, if you think about it, no one under mid-20s was born before I started Roe vs. Wade, or people in their mid-40s don't remember before Roe vs. Wade. And so it was to put in, into a page, that history, so I didn't have to tell it verbally, I could tell it in writing. And third, it was a candle when i taught at a women's college wheaton in norton massachusetts they had a ceremony at the end of the year and they would have the seniors take a candle put it into a styrofoam block and float it out on a lake it was a symbol of their hopes for the world being sent out it was a symbol of the college sending out its graduates and i am sending out this book as my candle It was a candle that was asking a year ago for people to help in regard to the presidential election. Now, as the paperback comes out, asking people to help, be sure it doesn't become a phantom right, one that exists on paper, but not in reality.
0: It was, there was a marked contrast the reader will note in your afterword to the hardcover edition, and the afterword now to the new afterword in the paperback edition. The mood has just shifted completely the opposite.
1: Totally. You see, a year ago, with four judges on the court saying, let's get rid of Roe, those were Rehnquist, Scalia, White, and Thomas. And then you had had Justice Blackman, who wrote the opinion, say, I cannot last forever. So it was clear that if George Bush were re-elected as president and Blackman retired, Bush could put the fifth vote on the court, and five is all it takes to overturn a prior case. So I could see if Bush were re-elected. He had said, I will try to do away with Roe v. Wade, and I thought he'd be able to. Now with Bill Clinton in office, it is clear White has resigned, one of the four is gone, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is now sitting on the bench. She favors Roe versus Wade. I don't worry like I did last year. And so for me, with that as a critical issue, something that is certainly part of my legal pride, um, now I feel better, I sleep better, I smile more, uh, for me, the election was the turning point of the future.
0: I do sense, though, that you are not completely at ease, that, that there is still some fear that, about what is happening to the original uh, the, the original substance of Roe v. Wade.
1: Exactly. Uh, that concern comes in part because with more recent U.S. Supreme Court decisions, there has been a chipping away at the strength of Roe v. Wade. O'Connor, Souter, Kennedy, a whole block of justices have said, we're not ready to get rid of it, but we wouldn't mind the states having more authority. The second thing is with the fringe, and it is a fringe, but an important fringe of those opposed to abortion who are picketing the clinics who are in one case shooting a doctor in another killing a doctor. Uh, it makes all medical personnel afraid and and therefore, there are far fewer people now willing to help uh, women than there have been in the past. There are also a lot of issues, are you 486? It's available in other countries, not here. Can we get it here? Or, for example, national health care legislation will probably be introduced in a way that would cover comprehensive reproductive health care, prevention of pregnancy, carrying pregnancy to term, terminating pregnancy, but can we get it through the Congress that way? Uh, Janet Reno has said she'll come up with some new ideas about legislation to protect clinics. Will that pass? And so even while I feel a celebratory mood about the fact that Americans have had and will continue to have the right to make their own decisions, the question is, once they make it, what will happen then? In
0: some respects, it almost calls to mind, goes back over 20 years ago when doctors in Texas were not sure under the law what they could do now it strikes me they're not sure under our vigilante law what they can safely do
1: that's right because i think you know i I've, I've had several doctors say to me there're plenty of ways to make a living without having to wear a bulletproof vest and i can sympathize with that and so the real uh, the real challenge for tomorrow is even if it's legal as it will be Is it going to be available?
0: I guess this whole, the whole 20 years worth of, of action since Roe v. Wade has proven that even a Supreme Court decision is not the final word.
1: That's right. And in fact, what I've learned more and more through these years is that American policy is a real triangle, a triangle of the court and what happens there, a triangle of political events and elections and a court of public opinion, a triangle of public opinion, because what the majority of Americans feel really has a great impact, particularly on the political part.
0: Given all that, though, it still obviously thrills you when you think back, when you when you close your eyes and conjure up standing, I can't imagine with the sweaty pawn standing in front of the Supreme oh. Court and arguing
1: a case. And I was, I, I was so nervous. I was young. It was my first contested case. I knew there were a lot of people that wanted me to fail, some who wanted me to win. I wanted to win desperately. Um, I had the night before I'd go to bed and, and my mind wouldn't turn off. And I would think, oh, what if they ask such and such? And I would get up and check it. And I would go back to bed and I would think again. And I would—I just, I couldn't sleep. And then that morning I went over to the court and you've seen those marble steps and they lead up to a platform, columns that reach into the sky. Uh, you go down a marble corridor and into the Supreme Court chambers, which holds about 350 Thirteen kinds of marble, marble columns. Um, on one side, when you argue, is the f- are, is the section for the family and friends of the justices. Another is the press. Uh, Chief Justice Berger was no further, as I was standing, to argue than you. Uh, and, and so you have this sense of the immediacy and the importance, and you leave having no idea what the decision is going to be. It's like I wish, uh, you know, when I was there, I wanted him to. Give me a little card, you know, nine cards that sort of tell me if I'd won or lost. But Yeah, this didn't. is not
0: Judge Wapner retiring to the chamber and coming back after the commercial with his decision.
1: Uh, not at all. It takes months before you really know what is happening. After the short
0: break, Sarah Weddington talks about the personal stake she had in Roe v. Wade. Now back to my 1993 conversation with Sarah Weddington. The other thing that has always amazed me is after a case that has gone on for months or years with small mountains of briefs, and documents, and all this, and it all comes down to 30 minutes.
1: Exactly. And, you you know, the theory of it is that you've already submitted your briefs and lots of written materials, and the courts read it, the briefs, the clerks have gone over it, they've briefed the justices, and you're just there to answer their questions. So if you do have a chance to listen to the tapes of the oral argument, what you'll be impressed with is how little I really got to say without being interrupted. I think in as far as liberty is meaningful, that liberty to these women would mean liberty from being forced to continue the unwanted pregnancy. You're relying in this branch of your argument simply on the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. We had originally brought the suit, alleging both the Due Process Clause, the Equal Protection Clause, the Ninth Amendment, and a variety of others. Since and it, anything else that might have been Yeah. And so really, one of the keys to preparing for Supreme Court argument is to have firmly in your mind what it is you need to get in there. And then you use the questions of the justices to kind of, um you know, they might say, what do you think about something? And you tell them that and then say, and by the way, I want to be sure and focus you on x and you have to really shoehorn what you think's important into their questions
0: you know you listen to those tapes and some of their questions are disarmingly simple i mean you could it strikes me that the lawyer could be very ill advised to study all the fine points the nuances of this law because they're just as likely to say well why is there air
1: uh-huh. It It is. They have this really broad scope in some of the questions, and then some of them are so small and detailed and technical, and so you have to do both. One of the things I did to prepare for oral argument was moot courts. And I would have my professors at the law school uh, when I had been there. I, I had friends. I had lawyers. I had other people who were involved in cases like this. And they would play like they were the Supreme Court. And I would try to answer questions. It was a way of practicing uh, to be ready. Now, I've looked back, and those former professors of mine were so generous with their time. But I've wondered if they did it because they wanted me to win or whether they just loved playing like they were the Supreme Court. <laughs>
0: <laughs> was there some feeling in 1973 that a young woman, first contested case, she's not going to have a chance before the Supreme Court? We'll, we'll help her. Little lady, we'll help you. But yeah. this will be just a cute little fun thing. This will look good on your resume someday, but it's not going to mean anything.
1: Well, there was um, there was a feeling on the part of a few that that I was too young and too inexperienced and someone older and wiser ought to be involved. But you see, at that point, all the attorneys who were, quote, older and wiser were men. And there was also a thought that this case, in the way it was being presented, too, had so much to do with, is pregnancy fundamental? And a woman could speak with more passion about that issue. Certainly the constitutional issue of, is there a right of privacy, a man or a woman could have talked about. But there were many women who called me and said, we really think this is an issue that is particularly a, a woman's issue and it would be better if a woman could present it uh, and so they urged me to go ahead in the final authority in the final analysis it is the client who decides and so Jane Rowe and the married couple that were part of the case the does said we know you we trust you we've seen you work on this case from the very beginning all through this three years we'd like for you to argue it
0: Did anyone in those early years, uh, at the time that the case was being formed and and brought to court, did any of them know the, the more personal side of your story that you tell in the book?
1: Never. In fact, the only person who knew was my partner. And what had happened was my senior year in law school. I was working my way through, upper quarter of my class, uh, needed to finish getting through. My parents weren't financially able to help me. Uh, I was dating a man who became my husband. He had come back from military service, was finishing undergraduate. I was getting ready to put him through law school. Um, and I became pregnant. And so we decided that we couldn't finish school, our dreams for the future would be dust, uh, that we couldn't give a child what we thought a child deserved at that point, and we decided to, to look for an illegal abortion. And so the moment before I got up to face those judges in the U.S. Supreme Court chamber, my flashback was to a dusty Mexican town, a border town, a place um a nation i'd never been to a language i did not speak a name on a piece of paper and an address certainly didn't have any references uh, and ron was with me and it was it was my memory of that back alley and there is no dignity when you must flee the laws of your own state um where doing the best you know for yourself and your future is deemed criminal Uh, And I wanted to do everything I could to see that other women never went to that back alley.
0: It must doubly dismay you then, given all that, when you see over the past 20 years this slow little erosion, bit by bit, sentence by sentence, uh, paragraph by paragraph, of what you fought so hard for.
1: It does. And you can't help as a lawyer and as a person to have a, a real feeling of the importance of the issue and the decision that came down in 1973. And so to see it almost disappear but certainly to see it weakened, um, I've been trying to figure out what can I do. Well, I think there are other lawyers who are really very good now and who are the primary legal experts. They're arguing the cases of today. I did the Texas case. An Illinois lawyer did the Illinois case. A, a lawyer from Pennsylvania did the Pennsylvania case. And so I haven't been needed for the more recent cases. And that's one reason I thought, well, what I can do is write a book write a book to explain to people where it came from, what it is, so that when people hear on the news terms like right of privacy, state-compelling interest, the rights of the fetus, is it a human, uh, all those things are at least the background, the last 25 years can be explained. How did we get to this point and what needs to happen? Uh, on my wall in my office at home, I have the goose-quill pen that you get It's a handmade goose pen, and when you argue a case in the U.S. Supreme Court, it is there for you to take as a souvenir. I also have an autographed photograph of the justices of 1973, and someone had said to me recently, well, can you get one of those if you lose? And I said, I don't know. I've never lost a case. (laughs) But the truth is, I've never been back. I've fought battles in the Court of Legislation and the Court of Public Opinion. And I hope people will find this book helpful. I tried very hard to make it reader-friendly, to be a book that you don't have to be a lawyer to read or understand. And Linda Ellerby was really helpful to me. Obviously, she's written a lot of things, done a lot on TV. And when I was starting to write, she said, now Sarah, you've got to remember that what people are interested in are other people. And she said, more people read people than time. And you should write an a a book that reaches out and engages people the way people does. Don't write just a time article. And so I've tried to make it something that people would really find interesting and would stay with, but it also was recording something. So when people say to me in the future, how did Roe vs. Wade begin? I can say, well, it's written in my book, and once you read it, call me back. What's hard for me as an individual is that I did Roe versus Wade in my 20s. I was in the White House in my 30s. Now, how do I top that I as su- I approach 50?
0: I was just going to ask you, you know, it's like the major leaguer, the rookie who comes up, hits a home run, a grand slam in the ninth inning on his first at bat. What exactly. do you do?
1: And, and I don't know the answer to that. And so what I finally have come to resolve for myself is to say we all want our lives to count for something. And that I never have to prove again. I, I did make history. I did change history. Um, but there is also that part of me that still would like to find something else. So I hope uh, that the book will be well received. I'd like to write another book, uh, a book ti- uh, tentatively titled, Some Leaders Are Born Women, that would talk about leadership, particularly from a women's point of view, I'd like to do what you're doing. And that is sitting in a seat talking to people uh, on the air. Um, There are lots of things I'd like to do yet, but certainly this is what I will probably always be remembered for.
0: Sarah Weddington died last December. She was 76. And you can find easy Amazon links to Sarah Weddington's book at our website, heardeverything.com. Now, while you're at heardeverything.com, That's where you will also find my 1994 interview with the plaintiff in that case, Jane Rowe, real name Norma McCorvey. I
1: was in hopes that these two attorneys would just go to the Supreme Court and say, okay, Norma McCorvey is down in Texas and she wants to have this abortion. And you nine justices here say, okay, and then we're going to fly back down to Texas and tell Norma it's okay.
0: And, of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, the man who became famous during the 80s and 90s for his telling of classic movie stories on the American Movie Classics Network. My 1990 interview with Bob Dorian. Oh, I saw a great movie today. And dad would say to me, What was it? And I said, Well, gee, I don't remember the name of it. It was a Cagney movie, or it was a Cary Grant movie. That's the way I classified movies when I was a kid. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson.